Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon and welcome to NJS Bay's Blog Talk Radio program, Conversations on New Jersey Education, a show dedicated to creating conversation among those of us in the education community and beyond on the important education issues of the day, a conversation that brings educational leaders to you, and I hope that you all feel free to join in on this uh, conversation. My name is Ray Penny. I'll be your host this afternoon. Today, as usual, we will not only be taking your calls, but we also will have our chat room open. I think this will give you another vehicle in which to participate in the show. Kurt will be taking the calls this morning and monitoring the switchboard. Kurt, can you please explain the process? Thanks, Ray. To call in, dial 1-347-989-8904. When you are ready to make a comment or ask a question, press 1, and that will indicate on my switchboard that you are ready to ask a question. I'll get your name and your question or topic. Also, if you are on the phone line, I will ask you to turn down the volume on your computer and only listen on the phone since there will be a delay and it is confusing. If you are just listening on your computer, we do have a chat room feature that you can log on to. We will be monitoring the chat room and will pass on some of the comments or questions to our speaker. To log on to the chat room, you will need to register with Blog Talk Radio. Thanks, Kurt. One of the most difficult occasions is manage the finances. There are limited funds and a lot of uses for that, those funds. The vast majority of those funds are tied up in labor costs. Not only is your teacher contract where most of your dollars are spent, but some of the rules that determine how staff and pupil time, contact time are determined are, is in the contract. So negotiating a teacher's contract has serious financial and educational outcomes. Uh, and today we'll be talking about those labor uh, negotiations uh, and here to talk to us about that is Patrick Duncan, who is manager of NJSBA's Labor Relations Department. Welcome, Patrick. Hi, Ray. How are you? Great. Um, well, let's get back to, you know, uh, I kind of alluded to it in the beginning, but when most people decide to run for the board of a school board, I don't think they think about the negotiation process or negotiating with the teachers. I think they're thinking about just getting resources into the classroom, uh, maybe building a, a new school building. But I don't know if negotiations is the reason they run. Um, but why is it so important? Well, I think that's right. I mean, I've, I've met very few people who ran for the Board of Education because they wanted to be involved in uh, contract negotiations. Um, but it but it has to be a priority. Uh, uh, and I think what you said at the beginning is, is pretty much on target. I mean, uh, every school district in the state of New Jersey has unionized teaching staff. Um, and, you know, public schools are a labor-intensive endeavor. Um, probably 70-80% of your operating budget is uh, wages and salaries that are controlled by the collective bargaining agreements there. And, and, and I think, like you said, too, it's not limited to just the financial resources, right? I mean, it has a direct impact on student achievement uh, when you look at things like instructional time or leave time, um, things of that nature. There, there's a lot of different kind of terms and conditions of employment that are controlled through that process. Um, okay, I'm a new board member, or maybe uh, I, I finished my first year in, on the board, and now a negotiation or teacher's contract is coming up, uh, and I'm uh, maybe I'm selected on the to be serve on the negotiating committee. Who's on the negotiation committee? Uh, usually, new board members. That's right. <laughs> now, the uh, the the board president will appoint um, usually three or four people to be on the negotiating committee. Um, and the board can choose whoever they want to be on that negotiating committee. Um, likewise, the union can choose whoever they want to be on the negotiating committee. Uh, 
Um, so, you know, sometimes there's a professional negotiator that um, works with that committee and sometimes not. Uh, in most school boards, I find it's usually uh, the board members, and maybe they might have a, a board attorney or, or someone else who helps them. But what's the responsibility of that committee? Well, you know, after they sit down with the full board, now the full board, um, except those people who may be conflicted, are the people that are going to determine the overall negotiation parameters. Like, you know, we, we've looked at our budget, we've worked with our business administrator, um, we've sat down with the superintendent, they've done all that prep work, and we determined, you know, given what we want to do on the educational front, we can spend, um, and I'm just making up a number now, Ray, but, you know, 1.5% uh, inclusive of the cost of increment. So we can spend 1.5% more on base salaries than we did last year. Once the full board makes those kind of broad determinations, um, then the negotiating committee is empowered to sit down with the association and figure out, okay, how do we, how do we get to where we want to get? Um, that, that's essentially what the negotiating committee does. Um, do they have to – is there a certain time that they should be reporting back to the whole board? Well, on a, on a recurring basis, they ought to be reporting back. Uh, you know, let me just kind of walk you through the typical uh, timeline. Um, typically, the uh, the latter part of the fall and as you approach the Christmas break, uh, if, this is if your contract expires in, let's say, June of 2013. Mm -hmm. um, typically, in November, December, you will be done. You will be doing some of the prep work, and I think we'll get into a little bit later to exactly uh, what's involved with that prep work. Um, but the prep work will be done at that point. Um, usually your first negotiation session uh, will take place in late December or early January. Um, and that's usually just kind of a meet and greet. Um, everybody sits down. We introduce everybody that's on the negotiating committee, uh, et cetera. And, you know, kind of the bargaining in earnest um, doesn't get started till um, either about now or maybe a little bit later, um, actually. Okay, well, you kind of alluded to that. Um, I'm, we're, if you need to prepare for the, the bargaining, uh, how do you do that? What's, what are some of your uh, first steps? Well, I, I, I think the most important thing you need to remember is there's a lot of this stuff that your administration um, uh, can and actually needs to do for you. Um, some of the technical things that you need to get ready is uh, we need to figure out how much money we are actually spending right now uh, in terms of salaries and benefits and such before we can start to think about you know, um, how much money we can spend next year or the year after or not to mention the third year of the new contract, right? So um, a lot of this costing information is going to come from your business administrator. Um, and the business administrator um, can show you, okay, this is what we are spending on health insurance, and, um, you know, meet with your insurance consultant. They can say this is what we're going to project for uh, year one and year two. It's very difficult to project forward with the health insurance cost, but you need to, lead to at least make an attempt uh, to figure out what you're going to be spending. Um, that's on the benefit. On the salary side, the BA should be developing for you something called a scattergram. Um, mm -hmm. And for people who are new to the process, all that means is it's just basically a chart um, that shows you where each and every staff member falls on the existing salary guide. Um, and that way you can, you'll know, okay, this school year we are spending, again, making up a number here, a million dollars on salary. 
Um, and it's important to know where people fall on the existing salary gram, scattergram rather, because historically what happens, right, um, there's no rule that says this has to happen, but historically what happens is everybody moves up one step on the existing salary guide uh, each and every school year. Um, and there's a certain cost associated with that, right? If, if you made no changes whatsoever to your existing salary guide and you just moved everybody up a step on the salary guide, you'd obligate yourself to spend some additional amount of money. Um, and that's something called the cost of increment. Um, and the cost of increment is something that the BA ought to be able to give you, too, once they figure out uh, what the scattergram is. Um, and that's kind of that's a good indication of what the employee expectations are when you approach bargaining. Now, I say expectations because, um, you know, there's nothing written in stone that says everybody has to move up a step on the salary guide, um, but it, it is good to kind of get an idea of, of, you know, if you carry forward your existing salary guide, what happens with your with your compensation costs. Um, you kind of mentioned it uh, before. Well, actually, I, I should probably should mention this. You were talking about preparing for bargaining. Uh, I understand that your department, the NJSBA Labor Relations Department, does – I mean, we can't go through the entire – preparing for bargaining and, and all that uh, now, but uh, on January 26th, I understand you have a program for board members if they're uh, in negotiations? Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously we're trying to cover a lot of ground uh, in the 45 minutes we have, Ray, but um, we will have a full-day um, training session uh, on January 26th in, in Hamilton at the Robert Wood Johnson um, uh, Center. And we'll cover in a lot of detail kind of the, the obligations and rights that the employer has, um, you know, the appropriate roles of the bargaining team versus the administration versus the full board, kind of the mechanics of bargaining, how do you set your ground rules, uh, the timing. Um, and we'll kind of teach you how to analyze, not only put together proposals that you might want to make, but how do you react to the proposals that the union's going to make. Um, uh, and we'll do a kind of some simulated bargaining and kind of walk you some, through some of the math. I think it's a, um, it's a, it's a very, very good way for, especially for the uninitiated to, um, to get ready for the bargaining process. And, you know, um, like I, like we said earlier, not a lot of people run for the board because they want to do collective bargaining. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the nature of this is that the people that you're sitting across the table from, um, the, the local association leaders or the NJEA rep, um, they will have been through this process likely um, at least a couple, three times. Um, so it, it's pretty imperative that you get some training as part of uh, the preparation process. Now, there are, there are some other things you need to do as part of the prep process, too. Um, you know, you have an existing collective bargaining agreement with your teaching staff or the, the union that you're going in negotiations with, um, and you need to figure out, you know, what's in that current collective bargaining agreement. Um, do you um, do you possibly have illegal contract language in there? Um, do you have language in there that extends benefits to your staff that's kind of atypical? Um, you know, just as an example, two thirds of uh, school districts have uh, 10 days of sick leave for 10 day for 10 month employees. If you have 13 sick days for those people, that would be atypical, and you kind of need to know that as you enter the bargaining process. And also, frankly, there's been a lot of uh, statutory changes over the last three years, you know, that uh, the existing collective bargaining agreement's been in force, and you need, to realize, you need to realize that some of the contract language in there is going to be needed to be changed because of uh, the changes in the law. 
before we get into the changes in the law, uh, you mentioned um, the salary guide before. Uh, could you briefly tell us what's the salary guide and what's the special challenge for a school district, school board, uh, when looking at the salary guide? Well, the salary guide is, um, you know, typically in New Jersey, um, uh, in fact, all teaching units really have a salary guide. And what that means is um, it has, uh, if you go down um, vertically, there are there are steps on the salary guide um, that correspond usually roughly to the years of experience that people have, okay? Mm -hmm. um, and horizontally, um, there are usually different educational columns or lanes. Um, so you'll have a BA column and an MA column uh, and maybe a doctorate column. Um, a typical salary guide in New Jersey is about 16 or 17 steps. Um, and this is this is your compensation. Um, uh, this is your compensation tool for your staff members, right? It's your right. compensation program. Um, it's how you attract staff. It's how you retain staff. So it's it's a very important document, um, and it's it's particularly um, this round of bargaining. It can be particularly contentious. Um, and this is this is a little bit of a technical explanation, but um, remember we talked about the cost of increment, right? The right. Cost of moving everybody up a step on the salary guide. Mm -hmm. Now, when you get that number from your BA, don't be shocked if that number is higher than 2%. Now, given that we're living in a 2% tax levy cap world, um, a lot of school districts have, uh, you know, they've, determine their bargaining parameters and what they want to settle for is 2% or some number less than that. Um, and if you have a cost of increment already on your salary guide that's higher than that, um, that means when you sit down to, to hash out what the new salary guide is going to be, um, sometimes that can be um, difficult. Um, and I'm going to have to back up to kind of explain why that is. So um, usually when uh, contract negotiations for um, teacher units in the state of New Jersey, it's usually a two-step process, right? Mm -hmm. The first step is you sit down um, with the union, uh, maybe the help with the state mediator or fact finder or what have you, and you'll reach an agreement on uh, any kind of contract language changes that you're uh, going to agree to for the next three years and also what the overall settlement rate is going to be. Let's say it's 1.5% inclusive of the cost of increment. Uh, but once you reach that agreement or tentative agreement, and both negotiating committees have signed off on that document, um, there's a second stage to the process. And the second stage of the process is let's figure out how we're going to distribute the additional money that we agreed to spend. Um, and that's where the salary guide comes in. It's really how you're going to distribute that money. And if you have an existing salary guide that will not allow you to move everybody up a step on the salary guide, um, then you know you're going to have to restructure the existing salary guide. Um, we don't have time to really get into. I was just going to say, it sounds like the salary guide is a program in and of itself. Uh, hold on, uh, we're just for our listeners. We're talking with Patrick Duncan, manager of NJSBA's Labor Relations Department. If you have a question, dial one three four seven nine eight nine eight nine zero four and press one. And uh, Kurt and the switchboard will get your question and uh, get your name, and I'll call you up. Or you can ask a question in the chat room. But uh, it seems like with all these different steps that uh, you would have 
and I know you have a special program just on analyzing and constructing the salary guide. Is am I correct? That's true. Uh, it, it's again, it's an it's an all day program. It takes place in Hamilton, New Jersey. Again, it's on February ninth. Um, and you know, this is one of the most important things you do at the bargaining table. And uh, uh, again, in detail, we're going to kind of walk you through. Um, how to how to analyze your existing salary guide to mm-hmm. figure out if there are any particular problems on that. Like uh, some people might have heard the term bubbles. Uh, right. There's a very large difference between uh, adjacent steps on the salary guide. Uh, we'll teach you how to identify that. We'll teach you how to figure out what the board's goals ought to be for the salary guide. Um, and we'll show you some ways to go about developing salary guides. And also, um, you know, this is the term and conditions of employment, so it's not something you can do unilaterally, so you need to be able to, to negotiate with the union about how to implement that guide. Uh, and we'll teach you some of that stuff, too. Uh, that seems actually – there's a lot to this bargaining, and it's particularly, I guess, for a board member, if you're new, you haven't really dealt with some of these issues uh, in union contracts. Um, but even if you've been on the board for a while, since in 2013, it's been maybe three years since you've been negotiating, there's been a few changes. Um, you alluded to one, and I'll go through a, some of the things that I've seen, and, and you can just tell me uh, how that affects uh, just very briefly the guide. Uh, we've had a 2% levy cap. We didn't have that uh, you know, three, four years ago. Um, how does that affect? I, I, you know, it, it may not – from the teacher's perspective, there may be a little effect, but – what about from the school board? Well, I mean, it's had a huge impact uh, on collective bargaining. Um, if, uh, you know, we were to rewind the tape and look at four or five years ago, the average settlement rates in the state were um, in the 4% range. Um, and now if you look at um, the average settlement rates in the state, um, they are just a tad north of 2%. Um, so it's essentially cut the settlement rates in half. Um and one of the things um, that school boards, uh, the school boards association, particularly the labor relations department, can do, uh, does is we track all that information, right? The the average teacher settlement rate, um, the the number of sick days and uh, work time and, and and issues like that. Um, the, the, and like I said, we saw this kind of very stark uh, change in the settlement rates in the two percent. Now we can. We can share with you information about comparability data, like uh, uh, if you happen to be in Bergen County, then you know what do the average settlement rates look like in Bergen County? Um, or when you look at those, um, what else is happening with those settlement rates? Are, are there a lot of givebacks in terms of work time, uh, all that sort of information? And this comparative data, um, is it's a critical part of the process. It's always been part of the collective bargaining process. Uh, I swear I'm going to zero back. I'm going to circle back and answer your 2% question. Um, but nowadays, um, while you need to be conversant in that uh, in the comparability data, that is simply not what is driving um, settlements right now. Um, what's driving settlements right now is, um, you know, the 2% tax levy cap because it is a hard cap. Um, there are very few ways around that cap, um, and um, now, for uh, just so for clarification, for those who may not know, the four per- we always had caps, but the four yeah. percent cap had a few more exemptions than uh, the, this two percent. You mean hard? There's less exemptions for districts to exceed it. There's less exemptions, right? Um, there's yeah, there were a litany of exemptions to um, the the four percent cap, 
um, but the 2% tax levy cap is a lot less porous. Um, so essentially, it, it's a 2% cap. Um, and that's really what's driving the settlements nowadays. Um, that in, you know, you'll sit down before bargaining and figuring out, you know, what you want to accomplish on the educational front. Um, and then given the financial um, resources that you uh, can raise given the 2% tax levy cap, uh, you've got to make those priority adjustments within uh, the cap. There's no way around that. Um also, since we've been some most districts have been in negotiations, we've had some health care reform, uh, pe pension and benefits, but mostly the health care we focus in and that has changed. Has that affected negotiations? Yeah, yes, it has. I mean, um, this, this is this is overplaying it a bit, but um, a lot of the discussions that that took place at the bargaining table about health care four or five years ago just aren't taking place anymore. Uh, because if you do nothing uh, over the next three years, um, a typical district that's entering into a contract negotiations right now, your employees are going to go from paying nothing or very little for their health insurance to at the end of the three-year contract, they were going to be paying um, – you know, somewhere between 15 and 35 percent of the the premium. Um, so um, that has taken a lot of the discussion um, off the bargaining table. There are still districts, though, um, that are um, getting additional concessions in the healthcare area, um, but they are usually moving from um, a more traditional type 80/20 uh, healthcare plan into a kind of a more managed plan architecture. Um, so um, you're reducing the overall premium cost. Um, um, so what you're telling us is uh, maybe before the health care uh, uh, package was passed, reform, there was a lot of negotiation in this area, but since yeah. that reform has actually uh, in a way helped the, the budgets of districts, they've been focusing it on other areas a little bit more. Yeah, one thing I want to mention from a negotiation standpoint, though, um, you know, the first time you sit at the bargaining table, um, this is something that the union is going to bring up on a recurring basis because um, they're going to tell you, you know, you have to make us whole because we're going to have to make contributions toward our health care that we haven't made in the past, and therefore our checks are going to get smaller uh, over the term of the contract. And and that's a real thing that you have to deal with and 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 and, and be able to have a conversation with the association about. Um, but there's a couple things that you need to keep in mind. Number one, the typical district, okay, and you'll need to work to, to cost out the numbers with your business administrator, but the typical district, even with the new health care contributions that employees are going to make over the next three years, um, it's very, very likely that at the end of the three years, the district will still be spending more out of pocket than they are now. Um, so you're still... Uh, need to be asking the association to help you with trying to kind of control the overall uh, premium costs. And you're still within that 2% hard cap, so that and that's not a lot of room. Yeah, I mean there's there's a uh, there's a technical um, kind of hard to explain in a couple three minutes um, um, exception for um, extraordinary healthcare costs, um, but it's really not a one for one trade off. Um, so it's not as if you can pass all of those on uh, through the tax levy cap. Okay, we're speaking with Patrick Duncan from NJSBA's uh, uh, Labor Relations Department. If you have any questions, please call one three four seven nine eight nine 
800-516-8904 and just press 1 and we'll get to your question. Um, we were talking about the salary guide and you kind of mentioned the steps. Uh, what about, uh, is there any changes in tuition reimbursement, which kind of is connected to movement on the guide? Well, yeah, there, there's been um, a change in the law that affects both tuition reimbursement and horizontal movement on the guide. Um, now, what that law says is for tuition reimbursement, right, somebody goes to school and the district pays for the tuition cost, reimburses them for the tuition cost. Um, what the new law says, and it goes into effect at the expiration of um, your current collective bargaining agreement, um, or the collective bargaining agreement that was uh, in effect when the law was passed. For most people, that's going to be the current collective bargaining agreement. It said that in order for the district to provide tuition reimbursement, three things have to be true. Okay, uh, Number one, um, that class had to be taken at an accredited institution. And that's defined by the Department of Education. You can go on their website. There's a list of accredited um, uh, institutions. Uh, Number two, um, prior to you enrolling in the class, you need to get the approval of the superintendent for that class, where the employee has to get the approval of the superintendent. Uh, there's an appeal mechanism through the board, um, but that is something that's required now, where before it wasn't required by law. Some collective bargaining agreements had it, but it wasn't required by law. And the third thing is that that coursework has to relate to, quote, the current or future job responsibilities of um, that employee. Um, and there's some uncertainty about exactly what future job responsibilities means. Um, but those are kind of the three rules. Now, uh, like I said, a lot of collective bargaining agreements were already consistent with that. Um, but, um, you know, you need to check your um, tuition reimbursement article to make sure that your contract language is consistent with the law. Um, now, the horizontal movement on the guide, um, same bill, right, uh, mm -hmm. same law, but um, remember I said there were three different things for the tuition reimbursement, right? Right. Um, current future job responsibilities, accredited institution, and superintendent uh, prior approval. Um, the third one um, does not is not required for horizontal movement on the salary guide. Um, and just so everybody's on the same page, what that means is if you're on the on the, the BA column of the salary guide, on that lane, you go out and get a master's degree, what happens is usually you get some bump up in pay. In pay. Right. Now, what the law says is in order for you to – in order for those credits to count towards that movement on the guide, um, it has to be from an accredited institution. So no fly-by-night um, um, uh, colleges anymore. Um, and it has to do with your future job responsibilities. Now, the law does current or future job responsibilities. The law does not require that the superintendent pre-approve that, although a lot of collective bargaining agreements already require that as a matter of law. Um, but again, this is another area that you really need to, you know, as you prepare for the bargaining process, you need to look at that particular article of the contract um, and make sure um, that you don't, uh, the changes aren't necessitated. So, and so when you, uh, I just want some clarification on uh, current or future job responsibilities. So that means if you're uh, a math teacher, uh, it has to be something. Unless you were going to be trying to get your science certification or another certification, it's got to be either a teaching class or something that that deals directly with your 
teaching responsibilities. Can't be uh, an art class or something of that sort. Yeah, it can't be. Um, you know, in the past, maybe um, you were helping somebody get their law degree or something like that. That would be impermissible now. Um, you know, the um, kind of what about the administrative classes? Yeah, that's kind of the open question: is um, how do you determine whether it's um, an employee's future responsibility um, to be an administrator? Um, there are some executive county superintendents that have taken the position that. Um, you know, if you if that job exists in your school district, um, then that is arguably somebody's future job responsibilities. Um, the other argument is that um, because you know it's kind of an inherent management prerogative to determine um, whether or not somebody gets a promotion, um, that the board of education uh, through their administrative team gets their superintendent gets to determine whether or not that's a future job responsibility of. of uh, of a staff member or not, um, and you know, there's there's certainly um, some case law that supports that idea, um, but you do open yourself out up to um, potential uh, litigation in terms of, you know, discriminating against certain people, allowing certain people to do it, not other people to do it. So, um, you should certainly check with your attorney if if that's an issue um, in your district. Um, and continuing with some of the things that have changed, uh, there was always the Neptune decision in terms of the contract, but there's been a little wrinkle uh, with the district up in Bergen County. Uh, could you, uh, Ramsey, could you elaborate on uh, that uh, ruling? Sure. So um, if you look at, if you kind of um, dive down into the, the, the data that we collect, um, there, there's about half of school districts uh, don't settle their contract before it expires, right? Contract expires on July 1st. When you get to July 1st, about half of those districts have not reached a settlement. Now, there's a significant number of districts who actually don't reach a settlement for an entire year, okay? So you're, you've been working under an expired contract um, for more than a year. Now, historically, when that's happened, one of the things that some boards have done is say, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to reach an agreement with the association today. That contract will go one year retroactive, okay, and it will go three years prospectively, okay. And there's a statute in New Jersey that says that Boards of Education are empowered to uh, reach agreements of one-year duration, two-year duration, or three-year duration um, in terms of a salary schedule. Um, the conventional wisdom had been that that meant you could only do it three years prospectively. Uh, what the appellate division just said, and this may be appealed to the Supreme Court, it's actually they're um, up for cert right now, is that um, regardless of whether it's what portion of that is retroactive and what portion of that is prospective, under no circumstances can you reach an agreement that is more than three years' duration. Um, so, you know, as we speak right now, you can't do that retroactive, um, a combination of retroactive and prospective that's four or five years in duration. The entire contract has to be um, at most three years in duration. So um, that's just something to be aware of if you've been um, – in the collective negotiations process for a very long time. Particularly if you're more than one year. I guess that, that's where that would be more likely, yeah. like it did in that case. 
And it's a, it's 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 somewhat related to Neptune. You mentioned Neptune, Ray. Right. Um, and this is an important concept for people who are new to collective bargaining to understand too. Um, there's there's case law in New Jersey that says the following. Okay. And this goes back to how complicated salary guides can be. That at the expiration of a three-year collective bargaining agreement, okay, um, at the expiration of that contract, the the bargaining unit members, the teaching staff members, their rate of pay will be frozen at whatever their rate of pay is until you ratify the new contract. That means that they don't get any kind of step increase after the expiration of the three-year contract. They don't get any kind of column movement. Even if they went out and got their master's degree, they can't move to that master's degree column until you ratify the new contract. Likewise, you can't have any kind of uh, increase in longevity pay. So whatever your salary is on um, June 30th, that's your salary until you ratify the new contract. Um, and that, that's been helpful to boards because, you know, teaching staff are frozen at their rate of pay, so they have some incentive to settle the new contract. Um, that freezing of um, uh, staff members' pay does not take place automatically if you're coming off a one-year contract or a two-year contract. So that's one of the advantages of having a three-year contract. If you have a two-year contract, um, you know, uh, best practice would be to negotiate language in there that kind of mimics um, the Neptune Supreme Court decision, which is the Supreme Court decision um, that that um, uh, spoke to what we just talked about freezing people's pay uh, at the end of a three-year contract. I don't know of too many who have more to, who have a one or two-year. I've heard of people thinking about doing it, but uh, uh, from my you know, it, guess, there's it, it almost happened, settled on three. Yeah, I mean, ninety percent plus of school districts have a three-year collective bargaining agreement. Um, a couple three years ago, remember when the state aid numbers came out and everybody was right. surprised by the state aid numbers? Um, in a few situations there, there were districts that signed one-year agreements or two-year agreements. Um, but you're right, it, it is certainly the exception. I mean, I, I have had heard people thinking about doing it because they didn't know what the, the future held in three years, but they usually went back to it. Um, you know, I'm going to go back actually almost to our beginning because uh, we didn't mention that you talked about some of the frameworks and the relationship with the, the union at the bargaining table. And we didn't mention uh, PERC, the PERC law. Could you, well, actually, PERC is one of the many acronyms that we have. Could you tell us what the PERC, what PERC stands for and uh, sure. how it kind of guides a lot of the, this relationship? So remember that um, um, every school district has unionized teaching members. Right, teaching mm -hmm. um, So the relationship that uh, school management has to its school employees, um, it's heavily regulated by a lot of different things, right? Um, there's anti-discrimination laws, there's the Family Medical Leave Act, all that sort of stuff. But the particular union relationship between the board and the association um, is overseen by uh, an entity called the Public Employment Relations Commission. Um, and that law is typically referred to as the, the, the law that they are uh, entrusted with um, um, uh, overseeing is called the PERC law. Um, and, you know, it's a pretty voluminous law, Ray. I mean, it's, you know, pages upon pages, right? Um, but if you boil that down to its, its very essence, um, what it says is that um, in New Jersey, we've made this kind of democratic decision that, 
the terms and conditions of employment, um, and that's a legal term of art, but those terms and conditions of employment, um, they have to be made through a joint decision-making process. Um, and that joint decision-making process is collective negotiations. Um, so PERC will uh, make sure that the board and the union follows its obligations under the law, and it makes sure that employees' rights are protected under the law. Um, they also oversee um, impasse procedures. Uh, and this goes back to um, the, um, some of the process questions you had earlier. Um, you know, at the beginning of the collective negotiations process, when you're sitting at the table, it's a bilateral negotiations, right? Um, the negotiating uh, team for the board and the negotiating team for the union um, sit down at a table and they try to hash out and come to a voluntary agreement. Um, if that doesn't work, though, um, there are specific impasse procedures under the PERC law. Um, and just, you know, kind of quickly, um, the first step of that process is something called mediation. Um, the state sends you somebody, the mediator comes up there and, and sits with the association and with you, the association leadership, and they try to hammer out a voluntary agreement between the parties. Usually what happens is the mediator puts um, the board and, uh, team in one room and the association team in another room, and it's kind of shuttle diplomacy until, you know, 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, the important thing to remember about that process is um, the mediator, um, they're all very nice. I've, I've met them all, but um, they do not care what the overall settlement is. Um, their job is just to facilitate a voluntary agreement between the parties. Um, if they can't do that, okay, then the next step of the impasse procedures is something called fact-finding. And fact-finding is... There are kind of two parts to it, usually. The first part is the state some sends you somebody else, right, a different mediator, and the first fact-finding session is usually kind of a mediation session with that fact-finder. Um, if they can't facilitate a voluntary agreement, then they'll take testimony from the parties, mm -hmm. um, and sometime later they will issue a report, and that report will have a recommendation for what the settlement ought to be. So it'll say, you know, I recommend a settlement of 1% uh, in the first year, 2% in the second year, and 2.5% in the third year with the following language changes and um, this change in the healthcare um, article. Um, it's a recommendation. The board can either accept that or reject that. Likewise, the association can mm -hmm. accept that or reject that. Either party rejects it, then there's no deal. Okay, there is no kind of binding arbitration for school contracts. It always has to be a voluntary process between um, uh, a voluntary agreement between the parties. Um, here's kind of the rub to that, though. If you if either party rejects that, then the fact finder's report becomes a public document, and so that will be in the newspaper at some point. And the idea there is that it'll it'll uh, push everybody to the quote unquote reasonable middle. It'll push people more because, particularly if one side favored it, right? If one side right, accepted I mean, the mediators. It, yes, um, that, that's the idea. And if if you still don't have an agreement after the fact finders report, um, 
then there is a third process that um, you can be involved in. It's something called super conciliation. Um, and it is essentially a deal. That sounds for, impressive. Uh, it does, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm you scared. You've got to figure out what's, what's the difference between super conciliation and fact-finding. Um, and there are a couple of technical differences, and, and I don't know if this will scare board members or, or not, but one of the differences is that at least on paper, the super conciliator has the power to keep negotiations going around the clock. Okay. Um, they also have subpoena power, so that is a little scarier than fact-finding. But uh, truth be told, um, there are only a handful of people who do the super conciliation, uh, and they are excellent at what they do. Um, and usually um, they can get the parties to an agreement. Um, but if they don't, um, then what happens after that is there's just a, there's a continuing um, uh, obligation on both parties' parts to continue to negotiate, to, to, to try to reach a final settlement. Because, again, at no time ever um, is the state going to come in and say, you know, you have to accept this settlement. And it, that's an important distinction from um, some, uh, like, police and fire contracts, for instance. Um, we're getting kind of towards the end. I just, uh, first of all, uh, for anyone who's listening, um, uh, and you're going to go into negotiations, we, we did this in like 40 minutes and we didn't cover that much. Uh, I would recommend that you go to either the February 9th on, uh, salary guides or the January 26th at bargaining at the table. And both of those programs are on our website if you need to get, need to register for those and, uh, it's probably well worth the effort. Um, if I heard a couple of things right as we uh, get towards the end uh, here, uh, uh, one of the things that you said that changed was the 2% cap has really affected districts. That, if I heard you correctly, that boards – in the past, you looked at comparative data, and it's still important, but now you're driven – boards – or in districts are driven by what they can just basically afford at this point. I should also add, this is my personal opinion, is it wasn't just a 2% cap. It was also the economy was not growing at the same time. So I think that probably affected things a little bit. But is that correct that you know, what the district can afford is seems to be the driving force in the last couple of years? Well, you know, not only what they can afford, but maybe maybe a better way to put that is, you know, you have these very strict financial limitations um, and, you know, what do you want to accomplish with that money? Um, you know, when, when you sit down with your superintendent uh, and your administrative team, you know, they might tell you, you know, these are the things we want to accomplish, um, and how do we do that within um, um, the, the cost limitations that we have with the 2% tax levy cap? And I, I, and we didn't mention it, but I guess you're, you, you alluded to it. Your administration should be uh, uh, a partner in this uh at least in, in in the negotiation process. You know, it is it is uh nearly impossible to overemphasize how important they are to the process. I mean, um you know, the board members no matter how much preparation they do, uh and a lot of them are very dedicated that are on the negotiating team and do a wonderful, fantastic preparation job, you're still not the person who is administering the collective bargaining agreement on a day to day basis. Um, that is the superintendent, the business administrator, maybe some of your principals. So they need to be involved from the get-go um, in terms of, you know, analyzing the existing contract to figure out whether they need changes or not, or, you know, they have an idea on the head where they want to take the district uh, as the leader of the district in the next two or three years. Um, you know, you need to have a talk with them. You know, do you identify anything in the collective bargaining agreement that is an impediment to you doing what you need to do? Um, and, you know, this jogs my memory on another thing, Ray, and that is, you know, 
you're going to sit down with your administrative team to review that contract, but that's also one of the services that NJSBA provides to you um, uh, as part of the dues that you pay. Um, if you send us your contract, you know, maybe the previous summer to, to when your contract expires, um, if you send us that contract, we will do an analysis of that, a very detailed uh, analysis of that contract. Uh, and we'll send you a written report, um, and ideally we'll come up there and actually give you a presentation about what our findings are. Um, and, you know, we'll have the superintendent, the business administrator, and the board team all in a room, and we can discuss, you know, what's typical or atypical about your contract, uh, uh, what some of the changes necessitated by statutory changes are, all that sort of stuff. Okay, so everything that we talked about, you do that and more. And on that note, uh, I'll come to the end. Pat, thank uh, Patrick, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Ray, very much. Appreciate it. Okay, uh, thank you for listening to Conversation on New Jersey Education. Uh, our next program will be with the School Ethics Commission, uh, and we have that tentatively on January 29th. Uh, and thank you for listening, and I hope you all have a good afternoon.